Okay, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Colin. Um, I'm today's speaker. I'm going to talk about um, S2N, which is uh, short for signal to noise. And that's our uh, TLS SSL encryption library uh, that we released um, over a year ago now uh, at AWS. We released it as a, a, an open source project on GitHub. Um, the reason for the name is just a pun on encryption in general. is about taking signals, like meaningful data that you can interpret, uh, and making it look like noise. That's just the art of cryptography. Uh, and so that's where the name came from. Uh, really, really simple. Um, what you can expect from this is we're, we're going to uh, cover why we built S2N, um, you know, what, what our motivations were, how it arose. Uh, in doing that, we're going to cover a little bit about the OpenSSL Heartbeat bug, do a little bit of a deep dive on that, understand how that bug arose, uh, how we try to prevent uh, similar bugs from arising. Uh, we're going to talk about how we then started the S2N project as an open source project at AWS, uh, with some perspectives, perspectives on how that works uh, at Amazon Web Services. And then we're going to talk about how we develop and test um, signal-to-noise, and, and what, where we are now, and what our future plans are. Um, I think this is really interesting, because it's uh, a unique opportunity for us to give kind of a view of how development works inside AWS. Uh, S2N is run by a virtual team uh, of uh, developers from multiple services. Uh, so we've got developers from S3, CloudFront, Elastic Load Balancer, the AWS security team, the AWS cryptography team. Uh, all of these people are involved. Uh, many of us have worked on multiple other uh, Amazon Web Services. And so the, the development style and the practices that we have in this project uh, are, are strong examples of how we develop software on a day-to-day -day basis at AWS. Uh, so it's an interesting, interesting view into that. Um, I don't mean to imply that our way is the best way to develop software or that there's one good way to develop software. There's, there's many uh, valid cultures of software development. Uh, but this is, this is a take on, on how we do it and how, uh, how we handle the unique challenges of, of a project like uh, Signal-to-Noise uh, and ship software. So that's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to start why, uh, why we built S2N. And to start with that, we need to go back uh, to what we did without it. So um, before we had S2N, we, use, uh, we used and actually continue to use OpenSSL widely at AWS. It's um, a library that's been around uh, a very long time now. Uh, it's uh, widely used by many, many organizations, ourselves included. And it is um, an amazingly successful project. Uh, when you consider that the OpenSSL uh, was, was started uh, by, by one guy, effectively, and then uh, taken, up, taken on by a group of volunteers to have gotten to the point where, essentially, they delivered you know, cryptography to the world. Like lots, of, lots of organizations, Amazon included, uh, have used OpenSSL for very long periods of time. Um, to secure data transfer, to secure things like you know credit cards being used to make purchases, um, it, I, I don't know of a, a more successful example of something that's uh, been uh, started from such a small base as a volunteer effort that um, achieves such such great amounts of adoption and made so much uh, so many things better for the world. Right to to have gotten to the point where 
It's a de facto standard implementation, and um, ev literally everybody is using it to, to, to secure the internet. It's just amazing. So I don't want anything that I'm about to go through in Heartbleed uh, to, to mean or imply that um, we don't respect that. The, the OpenSL project is an amazing, stunning success, and uh, has, has some issues like uh, all projects do, but, but it was not, we, our motivation in, in initial motivations in coming along with S2N were not about saying OpenSL is a total write-off or that, it's, um, or that it's, it's something we just could never build on top of, it's something we still continue to use, um, but we had existing kind of plans to build our own TLS SSL implementation, mainly for performance and efficiency reasons, because we realize now we operate at a scale where there are benefits to be had, uh, and we, we kind of accelerated those uh, when Heartbleed came along, because uh, we, we thought that would generate a lot of security focus on, on OpenSL, and a lot of other issues might come along. Uh, we, we moved things along. So I'll talk about that in a bit. So, um, so the other big motivation, right, it's hard not to. Uh, it's, it's hard not to cover this uh, for for why we started openness or as to when when we did is Heartbleed, right? So Heartbleed was a, a security vulnerability that came along in the OpenSL project on April seventh, twenty fourteen, um, and it was like nothing uh, that we'd really experienced before. You know, we've we've been through many security vulnerabilities in, in open source software and, and have a, uh, a pretty thorough uh, vulnerability management process in place. Uh, but there were a few things about Heartbleed that made it um, unusual and made it uh, a really good example of how simple vulnerabilities can be, but also how you know, widespread and impactful they can be. Um, to give you a, a demonstration of just how impactful it was, um, I have the Google Trends graphs from, from news stories around the time. The red line is Heartbleed, right? So it was this really big news event uh, when it happened. Impacted pretty much everybody. It was on the front page of the New York Times, front page of the Washington Post, uh, front page of probably every major newspaper. Uh, just for context, um, I chose a long-running news event to provide kind of a con context for just how big it was. The blue line is the Iraq War. Uh, and it, at its peak, made more headlines on more front pages uh, than even something as large as that, uh, which, is, which is huge. Uh, I think, in general, that's a good thing, the fact that Heartbeat made, uh, made the news like that, meant people took it more, much more seriously, upgraded much more quickly, and so on. Um, but we've never seen, and, and since have not seen, uh, any vulnerabilities or security events that were uh, as widely reported or as big a deal as that. And so let's, let's dig into why, right? So if you're not familiar with uh, SSL and TLS, other than that maybe they're, they're used to encrypt traffic on the internet, it's worth understanding a little bit about them to understand the heartbeat bug. Uh, the SSL protocol um, was invented by Netscape uh, back in 1996, I think, and uh, just stands for Secure Sockets Layer, and then was later uh, kind of taken over and standardized by the ITF and then it became TLS, uh, Transport Layer Security, but they're, they're effectively the same protocol. Um, but they exist as this layer of cryptography that exists between the, the low-level protocols on the internet, like TCP IP, and the higher-level application protocols, like HTTP, which is the protocol used on the web, or SMTP, the protocol used um, 
He's done the e- uh, user email. Um, and they're pretty pervasive. Uh, so every time you go to a HTTPS website, that's SSL and TLS under the hood. Um, so to understand TLS or to understand Heartbleed, we need to understand just a little bit about how this looks on the wire, like what's actually happening at the packet level. Uh, we're not going to get into the cryptographic details of SSL um, and TLS, but uh, all we need to understand is that on the wire, at the packet level, everything's encapsulated in a, a record layer protocol that's just part of the TLS standard. And it looks like this. It's really, really simple. There's a, a message type. Um, there's a few uh, valid message types. Things like, this is a handshake message, part of how a connection is established. Or things like, this is data. You know, you, this is what your browser is looking for. Um, a protocol version, which just lets us discern between multiple versions of the protocol at the same time. So if you're using SSL, this is a different number than if it's TLS 1.0 or TLS 1.1. Then the length of the record, and then data, right? And when it's a handshake message, it might be data used to uh, establish the connection, and when later on in the connection, it's just regular data that your, your web server is sending to your web browser. Um, really, really simple. And so there's an extension to TLS um, called the Heartbeat extension, standardized in ORFC uh, 6520. And uh, what that does is it adds kind of another message type um, that's encapsulated in the record layer, and that uh, message type has its own internal format. Uh, you can see it here. Uh, and what heartbeats are, are they're kind of like pings for TLS, right? So either side of a TLS connection can send a heartbeat request to the other end, and the other end is supposed to reply. And uh, the reason this was invented and the, the main reason um, it, it was designed for is to keep uh, DTLS, which is the version of TLS that runs over UDP, uh, connections alive, right? So firewalls often expire idle connections, and uh, we, we need to do tricks to keep them alive, and TLS's extension for that is the heartbeat extension. And so the way it works is, uh, you know, the client just periodically says, okay, send me a heartbeat, and the server sends back a heartbeat. As simple as that. Uh, for UDP protocols, like DTLS, there's also another interesting um, property, which is uh, there's, there's a, a property of the internet called the MTU, the minimum, uh, the minimum transmission, or sorry, the maximum transmission unit, or how much data you can actually send between, between you and a peer. Uh, TCP has mechanisms to discover that. Uh, UDP uh, doesn't quite have the same mechanisms, so you have to build it into your application layers. And so it's important for the client to be able to say, okay, I need to find out how much data I can actually transmit between um, you and I, the, the server and me. Uh, so it might send, okay, I'm going to send you a 1,500-byte heartbeat message, and if that got there, I want you to reply with a 1,500-byte heartbeat reply. And, uh, and that's how I know I can transmit 1,500 bytes between the two ends, right? And if it doesn't work the first time, it might reduce the number, and then it'll eventually find the number that works in both directions. And that's kind of the purpose um, of, of the, the heartbeat extension. If uh, the heartbeat event was made such big news, it actually uh, got its own XKCD uh, comic, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, but Randall has a, a pretty simple illustration of these, of this. 
um, we're essentially asking somebody to send us back some data that we sent them, right? So we send, in this case, we send six letters, potato, and ask it to reply with six letters. Um, and so what the Heartbleed bug was, out of, uh, th sorry, these are just the numbers that correspond to things. So if we actually use a real example, ignore the first few numbers. Those are just the literal values for each of those things, like 24 is the message type extension for Heartbeat messages. But here we're sending a payload length of three. That's the important number to pay attention to. So that's the client saying, I'm sending you three bytes, send me back three bytes. Uh, and what happened in Heartbleed was that we could change that number to anything we want, right? So instead of sending it, so we'd only send three bytes, but we'd ask the uh, server to send back up to 64K, much, much more data. Right, and that's kind of semantically invalid. That's not something that should be allowed. That's not uh, not something a server should honor. But the bug in uh, in Heartbleed essentially was that it did. So we only we only sent three bytes uh, in my example, but we asked for up to 64k back. And so what OpenSSL would do is it would actually just read 64k up to 64k of whatever was in memory and send it back which is um, an example of a memory disclosure bug. So it's not quite the most severe kind of security bug you can have. That would be something like remote execution, right? like I can run arbitrary code on the server. It was still pretty bad. And what made Heartbleed such high impact is this was really, really easy to exploit. Like people knocked up clients within you know, minutes of the vulnerability going public. And they could hit servers, and the servers would reply with you know, up to 64K at a time. Of you know what of data just that just happened to be in memory. Uh, OpenSSL also didn't do a great job of scrubbing memory or, or erasing things when it was done with them. So there would be lots of things sitting there in memory, like you know passwords or um, sensitive data, including the keys used for um, for SSL connections. And so if people had to go uh, revoke and replace all of their keys and so on. So if we go actually look at the code, right, just to see how this arose. It's kind of scarily simple, right? Uh, this is this is code from the actual uh, OpenSSL uh, file that uh, the Heartbleed bug was present in. Um, and essentially, what what was happening is OpenSSL is is parsing the the message that it got from the client. Uh, if you don't understand C code, don't worry too much. But what we're doing here is pointer arithmetic. So it's it's taking a raw piece of memory and doing its own uh, arithmetic on that memory to figure out what the size of data the client asked for. Uh, and then it just didn't have any check enforcing that that matched or was in within uh, the record size. And then it just copied that amount of memory and sent it right back to the client. As simple as that. Uh, this bug ended up being about two lines to fix. So you can consider it a, a two-line um, bug, if you will. Uh, and, and yet generated an enormous amount of impact, which is, which is kind of scary. Um, but there's some stuff going on that kind of that kind of created initial conditions to make bugs like this a bit more likely. And so to demonstrate that, so um, this is this is the file that that those lines of code were in, right? It's called s underscore server.c, which just means the um, the 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 code file in OpenSSL that handles the server side uh, of things. If I play this video, 
So while I'm talking, this is going to scroll through the whole file. It's going to take about a minute. This file um, is many, many thousands of lines long. You'll notice that it, it gets pretty deeply nested at points. Um, there's a lot of these blue if-def things going by. Uh, there's a lot of like um, hash defines and a lot of different modes of operation that we're going through. The core logic of this code file is a gigantic switch statement that itself is about 2,000 lines long. Um, so switch statement is just this kind of statement that lets us go through different branches of execution or take different paths depending on different things. Um, it is very, very difficult to follow what is going on in this file. So I've been working on OpenSSL uh, for about 14 years now. I've been uh, patching it occasionally and maintaining it, and I consider myself pretty familiar uh, with the OpenSSL code base. Uh, a lot of my friends are, uh, or a lot of core contributors to the OpenSSL project are friends of mine, um, and none of us could understand that, that entire file. It's just there's too much going on in one place. So although we have a two-line bug that crapped in and caused heartbleed, it's in the middle of so many lines of code that it's, it's, it's kind of inevitable that that would, 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 would happen. It's just really, really hard to catch with things like code review, right? Because you just can't keep the entire context of what's going on in your head. Um, and there were some other contributing factors, right? In addition to the code being just super hard to read and super hard to follow, there were no good test, test cases, right? So really simple, you know, standard, uh, set of boundary test cases, right? Like, so let's just test the boundary values for heartbeat messages uh, would have prevented this kind of issue, but there were none, so that didn't help. Um, the, the code, as we saw, right, is just doing raw pointer arithmetic on, on memory to figure out what a size should be. Um, that's, that's not a great idea. Pointer, pointer arithmetic is hard at the best of times. Uh, it would be better to just write that once in some place and constantly reuse uh, a function rather than rather than ask ask it to be done thousands of times in the code. As we saw, it's a lot of code uh, in one file, and I would say with a high cognitive load, right? There's just too much going on to follow, too many branches of execution, too many too many things for me to track in my mind to be able to really understand it. And then probably one of the more um, egregious problems is is that the heartbeat function itself uh, turns out just not to even be necessary. Uh, for like 99.999% of the time, like the vast, vast majority of TLS usage happens over TCP. It's for regular things like HTTPS and email. Uh, they just don't need heartbeat. That's for, that's for UDP protocols. But it was included and enabled by default, even though it just wasn't needed for, uh, for those modes. Um, and so uh, the combination of all those factors and a really, really simple uh, two-line bug um, you know, leads to a, a, a pretty a pretty massive level of impact, which um, you know, for me as a software developer, is kind of scary, right? Like, as the notion that you know, if I screw up two lines, I could cause an event as large as this, uh, that you know, you'd lose sleep overnight, or you'd, you'd, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to sleep. Uh, and so, the, a lot of the rest of this talk is about how we kind of try to prevent those things more systematically. And so that it, it's not just that, you know, if we miss two lines of code, uh, the world's going to end or anything like that. We try to, try to keep things more simple. So our initial response to the heartbleed event um, was, uh, so the, the vulnerability 
uh, went public uh, before it was intended to be disclosed. There, was, uh, there were embargoes in place and people were uh, working on um, updating stuff, but uh, for, for various reasons, um, the, the vulnerability ended up going public bef before those embargoes had expired. And so the world uh, was, was just caught by surprise by this vulnerability in the middle of the morning. Um, uh, we at Amazon treated it like a, a pretty major event, uh, as did our customers. You know, we had we had conference calls spun up and we were coordinating a lot, our response uh, across uh, across the company. You know, the first thing we did is halt all deployments of anything uh, and you know get everything prepared because we knew we were now going to have to make a, a bunch of changes rapidly, and so we wanted to minimize risk for customers. Um, and then we commenced. You know, we we uh, we actually produced a a very minimal patch uh, with this very smallest change we thought we needed to, to patch against the vulnerability without importing any, any other new code that could be additional risk uh, and started getting that out there uh, super quick, uh, going through our tests and, and pipelines and so on as quickly as we could. Um, and uh, we got it, we got all the AWS services updated um, within 16 hours uh, and the vast majority even, even uh, more quickly than that without additional customer impact which is hard upgrading, you know, all of something like ELB or CloudFund uh, in those kind of time frames is a challenge. And a lot of people put in a lot of hours and kind of dropped everything. And uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing, as, as did a lot of our customers. Um, it, was, it was such a uh, widely impactful event uh, that we knew would impact um, many customers that we kind of went beyond the standard AWS security uh, shared responsibility model where you know, we own the security of our services and customers own the security of everything running on their instances or their own software. And we actually put in additional monitoring to, to connect to customer instances and let them know if they were still vulnerable um, to Heartbleed so we would have proactive scans running. Um, and customers did a really, really great job of upgrading. It was, it was amazingly fast. Um, you know, within five days, we saw that pretty much 80% of everything uh, had been updated, which is, which is quick. Um, and within a month, 98%. And then if you tracked it like out from there, even, even a year later, it was like 99% and so on. So the remainder were, were things people just weren't paying attention to. No one's reading email, no one's, uh, no one's monitoring anything. And those, the, uh, those type of environments eventually get shut down. But what, what I think all that means is that the, the news and the coverage um, worked, right? The, 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 the general response, uh, people knew to take it seriously and did, and that was uh, that was that was pretty amazing. So that's just stuff on the on the, on the immediate response and the day itself. Um, more strategically, uh, kind of out of Heartbleed uh, came the core infrastructure initiative, which we are a member of, uh, which is um, initiative of industry uh, industry partners that essentially fund. Um, research and improvements into projects like OpenSSL to try to uh, improve the baseline security. Um, a lot of new uh, research into vulnerability detection got kicked off as well. Um, my colleague Byron Cook spoke earlier this week uh, about some of that that we're doing at Amazon as well um, and some of the industry research that's out there. There's been some amazing progresses in the last two years. Where there's now a lot more automated um, finding of vulnerabilities. Uh, I'll talk about that later. That's really, really cool. Uh, the, the folks from OpenBSD 
uh, created a fork of OpenSSL. They just copied the code, and then they started immediately ripping things out and simplifying it. And that's the that's the LibreSSL project, uh, which is pretty uh, pretty neat and it's worth looking at. Uh, the boring SSL project began at Google, which is their own uh, clone or fork of OpenSSL, uh, where they have um, where they are adding uh, adding new functionality, some performance improvements, but mainly focused on security uh, and simplifying things down and, um, and making it more rigorous. Uh, to um, Two really, really cool projects. Um, as I said earlier, um, we had tentative plans already. It was already on our kind of internal roadmaps. Not necessarily a customer-facing feature, but we had already been planning, okay, we're getting to the scale now where you know, we find ourselves dealing a lot in the nitty-gritty of SSL and TLS. There's performance and efficiency gains to be, to be had there. Uh, we, we should probably get into the business of... of um, of building our own, uh, of building our own implementations, right? And so that just suddenly uh, came forward. So there's two kind of common models for open source at AWS. Um, you know, one is it's it's an official like company project, like uh, the SDKs that we release or blocks. Um, you know, it's a fully you know Amazon branded project, something we stand behind. Uh, and there's also just initiatives where you know people work on things in their spare time because that's what that's what they uh, work on. You know, when I joined the company, I was an active contributor to Apache HVVD. It's just something I worked on for a long time and helped build. Uh, and I would continue to do that in my spare time. And so, uh, at the the very beginning, it wasn't clear like which of this which of these models uh, we would take or I would take. You know, I just speaking personally, uh, not only did I want the new uh, SSL TLS implementation for, for Amazon, but I also wanted something I could use in Apache. Um, uh, so uh, the initial start was not to worry about that. You know, we'll, we'll figure that out later. Just start writing code. And so uh, I started working on it as a spare time project. And uh, to give an example of, uh, or to give you an idea of how complex SSL TLS is, it's, it's not that big. Um, I was able to get a working implementation together in about 40 development hours over about five weekends. And I wasn't working on it. Too. It wasn't like I was spending my whole weekend on it. I was just kind of tinkering. Um, uh, and it wasn't too hard. It's not that big a protocol. Right? OpenSSL is a huge project, you know, over half a million lines of code. It includes um, every sort of cryptographic algorithm you can imagine and all sorts of cool stuff. But if you really pare it down and you focus on just SSL and TLS, it's not, it doesn't take that much to get that working, right? I've, I've, we've done implementations of DNS and HTTP before. You know, in my opinion, those are much, much larger protocols that would take uh, far longer to implement. Um, so five weekends in, we've got a working implementation. You know, a lot of that time wasn't even spent necessarily on like, writing lines of code so much as just you know bashing your head off a desk because you're dealing with cryptographic code and that can be very hard to, to debug and slows you down a bit. Um, so the, made pretty good progress. So that's a pretty good kind of initial take. It's like, okay, we could do this. This is totally viable. We could, we could just build this, uh, see what it takes. And so uh, people knew about this internally at AWS and um, the feeling was, okay, uh, that, that looks like something we should take on and do as an official project. And, and fund it and have, um, 
you know, software developers working on this for full time and, and, uh, and, and see what that would take, right? So, um, the way we went about that is we wrote up a proposal to, to make S2N an official AWS project. Um, we use a working backwards process at AWS, which just means we write the press release and FAQ first and to kind of give you an idea of what it would look like if we launch something. And if people get excited by that, that's generally a good sign. Um, and we, we, we went through that uh, with customers. Uh, our feedback from, from customers was, this sounds great. You know, we kind of trust you to do this. You, you're, um, you, you probably have the technical know-how to be able to pull something like this off. You know, there's an adage that no one should ever really write their own cryptography, which is mostly true, but somebody does have to write it. Um, and and we're, we're probably in the small category of, of, of places that, you know, are in the should. So uh, we kind of crossed that threshold with customers, but literally to a person, all of them said, great, but we want it to be open source. We want to be able to see the code. We want to be able to validate it. Uh, we want to be able to trust it and so on. So that was great feedback. Uh, our feedback from AWS leadership was, yeah, this looks great. This looks like something we could do. But we want to be able to define like long-term ownership, just like a product, just like a, a product or a service at AWS. You know, who's going to own this? Who's going to respond to security issues? Who's going to uh, who's going to make sure that it can it can keep going? That we can survive, you know, the loss of any one individual or anything like that. That we've got a bus factor of zero. All super important considerations. And so we had to be able to address all of those. Um, the path to open source was surprisingly like very very easy. Um, uh, we, we have a, a, an open source team at Amazon. They work with uh, Amazon Legal, and um, uh, they were all over it. They were like, yep, if, if we've got support from the executives, this is no problem. Ha happy to have it open sourced. Um, the, uh, probably more complicated than having to deal with any open source licensing issues, we're dealing with crypto export regulations, because when you're writing cryptographic software, you have to have export licenses and so on. But they were super helpful with that too. Um, no problems. We, we were able to get all that in place. Uh, the path to ownership um, was a little unusual. You know, normally ownership at Amazon means we have um, a team of people who work on a service. They own that service. Uh, it's very very simple. Uh, for SMM, we actually have a V team uh, made up of people from from uh, uh, from multiple services. That's consolidating a bit now. It's gravitating towards uh, ownership. Um, in, in, in one team, but for the last two years or so, it's been a, a V team. Uh, but we were, we were able to define what, who that V team is, who the technical leaders are, uh, what a roadmap is, how we would work with customers. Um, we have an on-call rotation, so if we ever have any issues or, or pre urgent problems, you know, we can be, we can be paged. Um, and we have a security process that we put in place, uh, where we worked with our, um, chief information security officer, Steve, um, and Andy Jassy, our CEO, to just define exactly how we respond um, to issues of particular concern is, you know, customers are going to be using this software as well in some cases since it's open source. So what are our notification processes? How would we notify them in the event of a security issue? Um, we have all that well defined. If you go to our GitHub project, you can see uh, what our notification process is, how we handle them. There's an email list to sign up to if you want to be notified uh, of issues and so on. So that was, that was the, uh, those were kind of the processy things we had to do. Uh, and they, um, they weren't particularly large roadblocks or anything like that. They were just a matter of addressing them and documenting them. Uh, and then we were able, able to launch. 
uh, but before we were able to launch, we had to build the rest of it, right? So in those five weekends, I built enough to be able to, you know, connect a web browser to a web server and download some stuff, but to really, really work at scale and deal with, you know, millions of different client types, um, there's a lot of long tail work of, of compatibility testing and efficiency and performance testing and so on. And, and so we had to get the V team spun up and define, like, how are we going to own and develop this project going forward? What was that going to look like? So that's what I'm going to talk about next. Um, and so I've defined, I've, I've split this into what I think are the five levels uh, we really think about this, um, at least how I learned to think about it working at AWS. And um, those are to focus on the team culture, like just how we own something as a team. Um, and then in much more practical terms, how we come up with simple designs and, and focus on readable code uh, to make things maintainable. Uh, quick and easy testing, uh, systematic defense in depth, and verifying everything. Verifying things, uh, verifying everything is probably a unique aspect to a project like this that's super security focused. We'll cover that too. Um, so when we started the V team, we did something that we do um, with most service and product teams at, at, uh, at Amazon, which was we actually agree and write down like what are our goals, priorities, and tenets. We call them tenets at Amazon, but uh, we call them development principles on uh, our GitHub project because we got feedback from a lot of international uh, developers that they didn't know what the word tenant meant. Uh, it's not that, not that common English word. And, um, and, and that helps keep everybody faced in the same direction. You know, the way I think about it is we always try to make data-driven decisions. And whenever there's an argument that can be resolved by data, it should. But there's always some amount of decisions left over where you kind of have to go back to some guiding principles. And so we, we write them all down and, and hash them out in advance so that can, we, we can all be uh, lined up. Uh, we also agree and write out our actual code guide, guidelines, what our code should look like. Um, one of our core tenets and principles and thing we probably spent the most time on was just making tests like super easy uh, to write, and super fast to run. Uh, really, really important uh, thing to get to get right from day one. That's uh, usually where we focus a lot of energy when we start things. Uh, you know, one of the ways we think about that is if we take testing under the umbrella of quality, a lot of time people can have the impression that quality is something you should make time for or that it you know, has to be accounted for in development budgets and so on. Like, well, we'll set time aside to, um, to do the testing. And, and we'll, um, but we don't think about it quite like that. Uh, instead, think of it as, as a habit that has to be constantly reinforced as just part of how we do everything. It's more like brushing your teeth. Uh, than anything else. And so in that context, like we, we have to start by saying, well, what are tests going to look like? How are we going to make them really easy? And we thought hard about the high-level design. Our actual goals, once we wrote them down, um, came out to be like this. Let's write a world-class TLS implementation. Let's stay minimal. Uh, you can read all of our goals uh, on our website. Actually, if you go to the GitHub project, you can read all of this. We've got a pretty pretty long document that goes through like what our development principles are in fine detail, what our coding guidelines are in fine detail, um, and how we, how we think about resolving decisions. Uh, it's all there. Take the time to read it if you're interested. Um, so that's at the cultural level, right? That's how we stay kind of generous and healthy as a team and reinforce each other to do, to do the right things. 
Um, but we also need like just super practical day-to-day -day guidance for doing certain things. And I, of which I think the most important is how we write code. You know, we're software developers. What we're doing every day is literally writing code. Um, and uh, we, we need to think hard about it. The, the biggest thing we optimize for um, in S2N for sure is that the code be readable, right? Where um, it needs to be understood not just by the compiler, but by our colleagues, by people reviewing it, especially since this code base is going to be reviewed so thoroughly, and by our future selves who may have forgotten a lot of the internal details from when they wrote it. Um, you know, one of our really simple guidelines for that is uh, the code itself should be super readable in terms of what it's doing, right? Like functions should have easy to understand names. The code should have this simple flow to it. Like I should be able to just read a function and be able to tell you what it's doing. If I'm writing comments explaining what I'm doing, that's, that's a bad sign. Like I probably need to rewrite the code or restructure it to be more readable. Um, but we do encourage verbose commenting to explain why we're doing things. Right, so if I need context from outside the code, like referencing a standard or some other part of the code base that's too far away to keep in context, like that's a why, and those are those are words commenting, and uh, that that rules never let us down. Uh, none of us on the V team uh, particularly like to argue about how code should be formatted, you know, spaces and tabs or any of that stuff. So we just we just took a, a hint from Go and automated it all from day one. So we have a make target in our project that will consistently indent the entire project. And we encourage everybody to just run that command every single time. And we've never, ever had an argument about code formatting. And if anybody wants to change anything, they can. So just a really simple example of some of our code. Um, this is a piece of code that actually handles a TLS extension. Um, and what you can see, we've got, we've got some Y comments. Right, like they're they're there to explain why things are the way they are, but the functions themselves should be pretty readable in terms of what they're doing. Right, so like I'm writing a uint 16. Right, it's telling me, okay, I'm writing an int. It's 16 bits in size. Really, really simple. All the context is there, and that's that's kind of that's that's kind of our, our ideal. Just make it at least that readable. Um, the um, so we, we prioritize readable code above anything else, right? If we have to make code bigger to make it more readable, we will, right? That is our highest priority. But in general, we also, va we also value less code over more code, right? So if we, can make, if we can make the system use less code to do the same thing, that will generally have fewer bugs. You know, defect rates are generally measured per line. Um, and it will just be easier to audit overall. That initial version of S2N that I wrote, that um, it could connect a web browser to a web server, ended up being about 3,000 lines of code total, compared to about uh, 150 to 200,000 lines of OpenSSL code uh, to do the same work um, out of OpenSSL's total of about half a million. Um, we explicitly try to avoid branches as much as possible. So like just ifs and switches and so on, we try to eliminate them because they, they put a really high cognitive load on the developer because now you've got to keep context of like, well, if I go here, if I go here, um, uh, what happens? And then that can get into a combinatorial space right? when you end up with lots of them. Um, we try to write small, simple, discrete functions that do uh, you know, one thing just so that I can sit and read a function in isolation 
and not have to keep a ton of context in my head. Again, really optimizing for like our own brain spaces and readability. Um, since we're a networking library, uh, another great trick we applied is we intentionally split the parsing of messages, like handling um, things like the heartbeat extension from flow control, which just means like, well, where should they go next, managing state machines, all that kind of stuff. It's just so the code isn't all mixed together. A simple example of that is kind of the high-level design of S2N, is that we take input, we parse it to a function that decrypts things, we parse it to another function that, um, you know, parses or responds with that data. We parse it to another function that can encrypt a response, and then we, we send output, right, which is pretty different to, say, the OpenSSL style, where it's that one big file doing everything at once, all in one big context with, with a switch statement at its core, is that it's trying to do everything. We're trying to make these discrete units of operation. Uh, one trick that we use to avoid branches is that a lot of the time, the functions that we're going to are referenced via function pointers. So we just plug different functions in in the same place, in like a modular framework. It's just kind of like a functioning programming technique um, just to keep things down. And so if you look at a typical, like how a message is parsed in S2N, it's very, very different from that OpenSL code that we saw earlier, right? So this is us handling a particular message in TLS, which is the change cipher suite message from a TLS client, doesn't really matter. But what we, what we do is, this is the whole file, pretty much, and we've got the code for um, receiving a message right up there on top, and the code for sending it right there at the bottom. And so that's how we're oriented. We're like, this is the file you need to read if you're reviewing how we handle this message. So you've got all the, con so you, in your brain, you can be like, okay, at this point, all I need to really understand is the, the format of that message. Um, you should also be able to understand that format just by reading this code, really, right? If you look at the bottom function, you can see all that's happening in that message is that we're sending uh, an 8-bit integer that is, in fact, the, the entire contents of that message type. Uh, it takes a little bit more to, to receive that data because we have to set up some state based on when we receive it, but it's, it's really, really simple. All the functions are hopefully uh, pretty legibly named, pretty, pretty easy to follow. Uh, so I mentioned branches. So you'll notice we're not deeply nesting here in branches. We're not getting deep at all. It all fits on one page. That's all intentional. Uh, I want to go back to the file we looked at earlier from OpenSSL. So uh, this is just one section from like somewhere in the middle. What you see here is kind of like a, a kind of beginner novice programmer error, which is um, nesting lots of branches deeply. And because it's it's got the mindset, okay, I need to check if some condition is good, right? Like this one at the top, we're checking if G is not null. Because if G is null, we can't do anything, right? So G has to not be null. So I'm going to check that. And then I also need to care if, like, ctx.g is not null. So I'm going to do that next. And so on, right? And you get many nested branches deep, which is a lot of context to keep in your head. And also just makes the code, like, really hard to read, right? It ends up looking like this. The branches keep going to the right. And it's, it literally falls off the, the screen at some point. Uh, if you trace the maximum branch depth uh, in OpenSL, it gets sometimes 32 branches deep, which is just a lot of context to keep in your head, right? So in S2N, um, and in general, uh, coding guidelines, we do it the other way around, right? What we'll do is, like, if the condition is not what we want it to be, Bail, right? Exit. 
So what we would do in that case, we would say, well, if g equals null, return minus 1. Done. I can forget about all that context now. Right? And instead of having these nested series of branches, you end up with like just this straight line of code that's really easy to read. And it's, it's much harder for errors to keep in. So this is like just a really simple trick to, um, for, especially for beginner programmers. Like if you can get into that habit early, it is, it is well worth having and it'll generally uh, make all your code smaller and simpler. Anyway, that's just one example of like our explicit coding guidelines. If you go through the, if you go to the reference doc on GitHub, you'll find more. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, we think testing is, is pretty key. Um, you know, I am not the kind of software developer that can just, you know, Frank Zappa style, like write the best code in the world the first time that, you know, it's flawless. I, I generally make a lot of errors as I'm coding and, uh, and catch them with tests and then iterate and fix, right? And that's, uh, and I want to make that development cycle as quick as possible. And so we put a lot of focus on that um, from day one. Uh, one of our explicit like testing guidelines was that tests should be so easy to write, there's like no excuse not to have a test, right? Like tests need to be easy enough to write for like interns, because we have interns working on our projects sometimes. Um, uh, and and to, re to reinforce that habit as well. And they should run quickly, right? Because it's just a nuisance if they don't. Like it, it slows us down. So did that. We have a lot of tests in S2N, like a lot. Uh, if you go download the project from GitHub and type make, uh, or do make-j32, which will just parallelize everything, um, we run through literally billions of test cases um, in the test suite, and it all finishes in less than about 20 seconds. Uh, on my Mac at the moment, they finish in eight seconds. Uh, um, so I can, I can be writing code, I can be adding new tests, you know, I'll do make-j, 20 seconds later, I know if all my tests pass or fail. Um, S1 is written in C uh, for backwards compatibility reasons. We were replacing OpenSSL. OpenSSL is written in C, so we kind of had to write it in C. Uh, there's a lot of religious wars about whether C is right or not for security-critical uh, software like this. Uh, all I'll say is when, when, when you're replacing a C project, you pretty much have to use a C project to, to replace it. And also in crypto, there's, there's some times where you need constant time code, and you can really only do that in C. Anyway, that's an, that's an aside to all this. Um, but C doesn't have a test framework, right? There's no J unit for C. Well, there's a few competing ones, but no clear leader, no, no like idiomatic uh, testing framework for C. So you have to write our own. It turns out that's not that hard. Uh, we wrote our own testing framework um, in, in like 11 lines of, of C preprocessor include macros. You can go see them in the, in the GitHub repository. Uh, and we made it this easy to write tests, right? So it's very JUnit-like in structure, um, um, where you know essentially we define little programs that are the test cases, uh, and the tester can can do whatever they want in those test cases, uh, and and we're done. Really, really simple. And that's how we have uh, many, 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 many test cases, and those um, those turned out to be. Um, Amazingly fruitful when it came to verifying things, um, because all those test cases could be used in, in uh, verification software as well. Um, if we go back to this example a little, uh, you'll see 
when we're writing and parsing messages, I didn't mention it the first time, but we're not doing that direct pointer manipulation that you saw in OpenSSL. Right? We're using these stuffer functions instead to write integers. Uh, and that's an example of how we do like, systematic defense in depth in S2N. Right? Uh, we don't want to just rely on programmers not making errors everywhere. We want to have um, procedures that would defend against many, many types of error recurring. Um, so the, the kind of first level of, that we do of that is just really, really simple safety stuff. So we, we turn on basically every C compiler warning you can imagine, everything we can find, we turn them all on. Um, we, uh, we do that by default every time we compile. So lots and lots of, as much paranoia as we can do there. Uh, we have a lot of built-in safety routines that we encourage like liberal use of, sprinkled throughout the code base. So like we have safe versions of memcopy, for example, checking that returns are what they are. Uh, we have safety routines for checking that things are null and not null. These are also really useful when debugging because you can kind of redefine a macro and put a, like a printf in there if you want and see where you're triggering an error. Um, and the stuffer is another example of that, right? So IO is so common in a networking library that we decided, okay, we would build in first-class support for that. So instead of doing typical C style, like OpenSSL was, like just raw buffer manipulation with pointers, we're going to um, emulate something like Java's byte buffer class, where we're going to use streams, right? We're going to have, so that's what a stuffer is. Stuffer is uh, a buffer for stuff or a streaming buffer, depending on what way you want to define it. But it's, it's just a really simple C structure that has like four pointers, a pointer to the start of a memory region, the end of a memory region. It's got a read cursor and a write cursor so that we can write and read into this buffer in a stream style. And it's got some really simple functions to tell you how much space is left, how much data is actually in there. And then we construct all I.O., all serialization, all marshalling and demarshalling. It's just operations on that stuffer. So I can read ints into it. I can write ints from it. It enforces very simple guarantees, like, well, I can't read past the end of a stuffer, right? So that's like a defense in depth directly against heartbeat, heartbleed, right? Just couldn't happen. The stuffer wouldn't let it. Like, we would try to read 64K. So let's say we made that error, right? Let's say we didn't have a check for 64K. Well, we try to read it from the stuffer. It's sort of like, well, I don't have 64K. You can't have it, right? So now we've got defense in depth, which is pretty awesome. Our stuffer also has routines for, like, turning things to hex or from hex, doing all sorts of useful things. Um, we use it in other projects. Uh, it's, it makes things far, far simpler. Uh, deduplicates a lot of our code, right? Really, really cool. Uh, you can do, uh, you can do uh, some, if you look at this one, I've got like a raw read routine into a stuffer, which basically lets me say, you know, I'm gonna get TLS finish land amount of bytes from the stuffer, so make sure it's there, you know, can't read past the end. And then I've got another safety routine, and this one actually constant time equals, because I'm doing uh, some checking of that memory, whether it is what it should be, and we need to do it in a secure way, not leak any data. Um, all, these, all these are examples of what we've built in, and if you go look at the S21 library, you'll find you know, uh, many, many more examples. But that's the kind of defense in depth we face. So this is how I sleep at night, right? Because if I, if I miss, the easy-to-miss detail of, oh, I, f I forgot to check about whether it's 64K, we have layers of defense that will catch those. And then below this again, 
Wait, we want even more defense in depth, right? So we want to actually try to formally verify that we don't have bugs. Um, so when we went, before we launched um, S2N, we had done four like full code audits. Basically, we had, we had done two government ones and two commercial ones where we provided them with the entire source code, uh, and they uh, basically read through it, did their own testing, tried to find any defects. Um, uh, and uh, before we launched, they had found four defects, uh, all of which are documented and included in our, in our uh, commit history. You'll, you'll find them if you, if you want to find them. The most serious of which uh, was a small memory leak in an error case. So the client could send us malform traffic, and we would leak four bytes of memory each time. And so if the client did it enough times, we'd eventually exhaust memory and give up. And that was the most serious vulnerability we found. So that was, that was encouraging. That, um, that's not too severe. But we also started, we've done more audits since, two more since, that's why it's six. Uh, and anything we ever find, we always put it in our, in our GitHub issue tracker. The, um, we, but we started doing more formal verification, right? using mathematical techniques to actually find issues. Uh, we have been working with a company called Galois and another company called Trail of Bits on doing uh, formal verification um, of our HMAC code, which is just a cryptographic algorithm we use. Um, we've, we've got automated fuzz testing now of everything. Uh, so on every single commit, we are now doing both formal verification of our code and fuzz testing of all the code. Uh, and we're working on ident automatically identifying side channels, like going beyond uh, what we just want to read them, uh, read into them. If you're curious about any of these, you can go look at them. The saw tests that we have in S2N is a really good thing to look at. That's, those are the contributions from Galois that cover how we, how we formally prove that our cryptographic implementations are correct. Um, you can look at Byron Cook's talk from earlier this week. It'll be on YouTube. He goes into much, much more detail about what they're doing here. He's from the Automated Reasoning Group, which is where I got this cool T-shirt. Um, from all that, where are we today? Um, so S2N, when we started it, you know, we're Amazon Web Services. We're very server-side focused in general. Uh, we're still very focused on that. So S1 is not a general purpose replacement for OpenSSL. It includes hardly any client support at all. Uh, we're just beginning on that now because we do have plans to include it in, in spaces like IoT and so on where the client is more relevant. Uh, but up until now, we've generally been focused on writing a server implementation because that's what we know best. Um, it intentionally doesn't have support for a lot of features. Like, it doesn't support the heartbeat extension. That's an, an intentional security choice. Uh, a big missing one that does hold, hold people back from using us is we don't support client certificate authentication at all. Um, but we're working on that right now. Uh, we were writing code earlier this week. Um, so that's, that's coming pretty soon. Uh, we've been turning off support for insecure things. So since we launched uh, S2N, you know, the world decided SSLv3 wasn't safe anymore. 3DES isn't safe anymore, so those are now, uh, those are now all turned off. Um, we've got uh, seven active contributors uh, at Amazon, and our bus factor is zero, which just means like any one of us could, could leave or have a terrible accident uh, falling in front of a bus, and uh, the project would be fine. Uh, you know, there's, there's sufficient leadership there to continue. Everything's well documented, and uh, it's, all, it's all, pretty, uh, all pretty stable. Uh, we've had con contributions from 11 non-Amazonians, so I'd say S2N is an example of an open source project that's 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of small, it's a niche area, it's never going to be the kind of project that's going to have a lot of external contributions, like the amount of people in the world just randomly interested on working on hardcore crypto in their spare time is not that large. Um, so I think we're doing pretty well there. Uh, we are using it in production. It's in front of like AWS traffic right now. Not everything, uh, and, and you know, an increasing proportion over time, but uh, it's there. Without us really focusing on performance improvements yet, we think we have significant room for improvement there. We've identified some, some cool things we think we can do. Uh, we're, we're seeing about a 2.5% uh, performance improvement in terms of throughput um, over up in SSL. Uh, the, the main reason that is, is we just go through so, um, so much less code, effectively. Uh, you know, it, it, to go through um, you know, a few thousand lines of code instead of going through tens and thousands of lines of code is, is where, that's, where that comes from. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I'd say our key takeaways, like the things I would most want to sell anybody on uh, from the project uh, that most benefited us, and I, I would repeat every time uh, starting a new project, is um, you know, that act of writing down our goals and our development principles and our code lines, our code guidelines has been so beneficial in onboarding new people. Like we get code contributions from people we've never met or ever even spoke to, and they, you know, they are matching the decisions we would make because we took the time to write those things down, which I think is is amazing. Just a huge productivity boost. Uh, writing readable code, like you know, even now I thank that you know, like two years ago when we started the project, we focused on readability because I've already forgotten a lot of those internal details. Um, but it, it's readable enough that I can, I can get uh, up to speed very quickly again. I don't have to, um, I don't have to spend hours going like, what does this do? Um, making the testing habitual, I think, has probably been our biggest payoff of all, especially because that made the formal verification easier. We had external contributors come along. Uh, we had a great company called uh, Trustinsoft, who were funded through the um, Core Infrastructure Initiative, come along and verify that s to um, had no uh, undefined behaviors in its code base. Well, they actually found a few cases, which we fixed, and now it has no undefined um, behaviors in the code base. And they were able to do that because we had all the tests. Like, they were able to use the test cases as a mechanism to find all those, which is pretty awesome. So uh, I'd say that's worth repeating. Um, Thank you all for coming. Uh, fill in your uh, evaluations, if you remember. This is uh, NEF 405. And uh, if you get a chance, I definitely recommend both Byron Cook's presentation from earlier this week. If you weren't there in person, go watch it on YouTube when it gets up. He talks about formal verification at length. It's great. And Eric Manwine's talk about encryption, uh, which will be super interesting for this audience, I think. Thank you all. Thank you.